commercial space and magnetic stars. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA is relying more and more on the private sector to help its exploration efforts, from building the next moon lander to transporting astronauts to the International Space Station. So what does the future look like for this new dawn of commercial exploration? We'll talk with Main Engine Cutoff podcast host Anthony Colangelo about the latest space business news and how leveraging commercial companies will help NASA reach places like the Moon and Mars. Then, magnetars are neutron stars with powerful magnetic fields with the power to destroy anything in their paths. So where do they come from? We'll chat with our panel of expert scientists on this week's I'd Like to Know segment. That's just ahead, but first let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. Kathy Leaders will head NASA's Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate, leading the agency's human spaceflight efforts. She's the first woman to lead human spaceflight at NASA. Since 2013, Leaders served as NASA's commercial crew program manager as SpaceX and Boeing developed new spacecraft to launch humans to the International Space Station. A successful launch of astronauts Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken last month from Kennedy Space Center ended a nearly decade-long reliance on Russia for rides to the station. As HEO Associate Administrator, Leaders will not only oversee NASA's commercial crew program, but also the agency's push to return humans to the moon in the 2020s. NASA's Artemis program aims to land humans on the lunar surface by 2024 using its new rocket SLS and Orion, launching from Kennedy Space Center. Stay up to date with the latest space news headlines. Visit wmfe.org space or follow me on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. Last week, NASA announced the selection of Pittsburgh-based company Astrobiotic to deliver a new rover to the surface of the moon. It's part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services program, which relies on commercial companies to send science and supplies to the lunar surface ahead of human missions later this decade. Anthony Colangelo hosts the podcast Main Engine Cutoff, which tracks the ins and outs of the commercial space industry, and joins us now to talk about how commercial companies are shaping this next era of exploration. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Brendan. It's been a long time since we've talked on this show, I guess. It's been a little while. It's been too long on this show. I think the last <laughs> time we had you was SpaceX just started landing their boosters, I wow. think was the last time you were on the show. So that was uh, ages ago. It's and... an entire other universe <laughs> based on how this universe. year is going. <laughs> well, let's talk about um, what's happening right now. Um, the big news last week was NASA's selection of the commercial company Astrobiotic to launch the agency's Viper rover to the moon, which is a really exciting mission. Um, but let's talk about the business side of this, Anthony. Why is this such a big deal? This is an entirely new way to contract for not only missions generally, but in- insanely advanced missions like the Viper rover. Uh, essentially, NASA has a payload they want to get to the moon, and they ask companies to bid an entire price from start to finish. Launch vehicle, the landing platform that takes it down to the lunar surface... Uh, everything all in one price, and then they compete these different bids. They have uh, something on the order of a couple in the teens of companies that can submit bids for these different missions that they, they put out. Um, and then they pick the best offer. That That's a mix of the budget, uh, the technical side, the actual 
uh, solution that the company's proposing. You know, for this one, it's a rover, so they had a lot of specifics around how that rover was delivered to the surface, how it rolls off onto the surface from the lander. Uh, so there's a huge matrix of considerations there, uh, but it, it really puts people head-to-head on what can they offer to NASA for the best price and the best solution, and it lets NASA select uh, a mix of companies. Like you mentioned, this is not the first uh, Eclipse mission that's been bid this way. This is actually the fourth one. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can use all these different companies to really spread not only risk among who's taking payloads to the moon, um, but different technical approaches, which NASA is always a big fan of, as we've seen with uh, commercial cargo and crew to the International Space Station, they tend to like to have at least two competitors, and more is always better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this is kind of like vastly different from how previous lunar exploration missions were deployed, right? Absolutely, yeah. It would be up to NASA to really develop, you know, they might be able to get a launch from somebody, but it would be up to NASA to develop the landing system, the rover itself, the communications that all of that would use, the operations that all of that would use. Um, But this way, they're offloading a lot of the work to the commercial companies um, that they're contracting with. So, you know, in this case, Astrobotic is going to be building that lander platform. They're buying a launch themselves. NASA has nothing to do with any of that. NASA provides them with the payload, and Astrobotic takes it from there. Uh, it's it's more similar to, honestly, how commercial companies would buy maybe a communications satellite and send it up on a SpaceX Falcon 9. They really just give SpaceX the payload and let them take it all the way to, you know, geosynchronous orbit or something like that. Mm-hmm. This is very similar for NASA, but it's extended much beyond that to a much more complex mission uh, going all the way to the lunar surface. And in this case, going to the South Pole, where, you know, only uh, China has sort of landed close to that with their most recent rover. Uh, but NASA has never been anywhere close to the uh, lunar poles. It's like NASA sending a package via FedEx or UPS, but uh, it's somewhere is. in space, and, right? And I, I think, last I heard, Astrobotic had some sort of partnership with DHL, so you're not even too far off <laughs> so there from we go, using yeah. that uh, analogy. <laughs> well, I mean, this, this, this obviously, as you mentioned, it, it mitigates risk by spreading out the different companies and, and different methods to get things to the moon, but it also has to lower cost, right? I mean, that's that's pretty much the end goal of, of Jim Bridenstine and this administration, is to, is to lower the cost of getting stuff places in space, right? Yeah, $200 million for an end-to-end mission to the moon is is unbelievable. Um, there's And this is a pretty big rover, too. This is about 500 kilograms, about 1,000 pounds. So that's a lot of cargo down to the surface. And just for comparison's sake, in space, a typical communication satellite that I just mentioned, that would come in around $200 million. So for the price of a commercial satellite, of which there are hundreds on orbit, um, you're getting an entire mission to the moon with a very large payload. That is something that, you know, in, I think I saw some math recently, you were talking about the cost per pound uh, program to land things on the moon. How much does it cost to take a certain payload to the lunar surface? I think I saw some math that said in the Apollo era, that was about $800 million per ton to the lunar surface. Mm-hmm. Based on what we've just seen with Viper, that's down to $400 million a ton, which still sounds like a lot, but it's half the price of the Apollo era. Yeah, uh, based on you know the way that they're doing this now, and and this being the first big mission to the moon in this model, that's probably the high point of price, and we'll see it come down a lot in the future as more things come online. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this clips program is um, very interesting. I, I remember you know hearing about the the announcement um, many months ago. I mean, how is this really changing the way NASA does business? in space. I mean, th- this is kind of laying the groundwork for, for even more commercial partnerships, right? Certainly. And, and 
it, it to me is kind of the un- unsung hero of this era of NASA where there's a lot of focus on the human landing systems that they've been contracting for and a lot of focus on taking astronauts to the surface. But this weird little program can kind of fly under the radar and get a lot done. Um, and, and one of the most key parts to understand here is that this is a way for NASA to increase the availability of payloads going to the lunar surface. Whereas before, there was a mission called Lunar Prospector. Um, that is actually kind of the, the descendant of that is Viper, the rover we're talking about here. Uh, but that was going to be an all-in-one NASA mission where they bundle a lot of payloads together. They have to get that mission right. They send it to the lunar surface, and it's kind of a one-off mission. Instead, they're going this route with the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program where they're acquiring tons of different landing vehicles. And what that means is they can take smaller payloads, bundle them into smaller missions, and send more of them to the lunar surface. So you might have a friend down at UCF working on a payload that's going to go to the lunar surface on the first CLPS lander. They might get it there. It might work. It might not. They can take what they learned and then send another one up on the third or fourth mission. And it increases the time between missions, whereas before, you know, we've honestly barely sent a lot of things to the moon in recent years. Um, But this is going to send four missions over the next three years, um, which is an astronomically higher rate than we've been sending things in the past. So Mm -hmm. to be able to break these things down into smaller payloads on more missions increases the access that we have to the lunar surface. And not only that, you can send it to many different places. All these landers are going to different spots on the moon. We have different things we want to learn in different environments. So rather than putting all your eggs in one basket, you're kind of spreading it around the moon. Um, and NASA is going to be able to acquire, you know, up to 10 landers in the next five or six years based on their current rate, which is uh, an incredible amount. Mm-hmm. It really is. And all of this is kind of laying the groundwork for, you know, the big flagship Artemis missions, right? Landing landing humans on the moon. All the science is going to prepare for those missions. But let, let's talk about Artemis and the human hardware. Um, how is sourcing all of that going for NASA? Well, they've had some big news recently in that they've contracted a couple of different companies to start designing and developing uh, lunar landers for that human mission. So they've got uh, SpaceX on contract, and, and these are 10-month contracts that really refine the design of these things. So SpaceX will be working on their Starship prototypes and their designs that, that we've seen a lot of work for down in Texas. We've got a company called Dynetics that will be working on a lander of their own. And then we have a big conglomeration of Blue Origin, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Draper Labs that are working on a concept all together. So these three very different proposals are now going to be worked on for the next 10 months. In that time period, NASA will follow along with the way these things are going And in maybe seven or eight months, we'll start to see some indications of uh, who's going to get the bid for that initial human landing that they're targeting for 2024 right now. But it seems very likely that NASA is going to continue on with all of these companies, maybe two, probably three, to continue to develop these landers into the future. So what we're seeing here with the CLIPS program on the smaller side, they're trying to mimic that on the larger human side, which is kind of mind-boggling when you think about the scale of difficulty difference between mm-hmm. landing, you know, 100 kilograms on the moon to landing several humans on the moon with everything, you know, they got to eat. Payloads don't have to eat, but humans do. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of other, and as you are the specialist in space toilets, <laughs> there's got to be a space toilet on that lander. Yep. So the, the scale of difficulty is is much higher, but they're taking the same approach because they've seen success. All of these companies are working on landers that are totally different from each other when you look at the pictures of these things alone 
even as a non-rocket scientist as you and I are, you can tell how different these things are. And mm-hmm. um, that's going to give NASA the best shot to do this, whether it's in 2024 or later than that. The They're going to figure out which approach is working best and which fits with the rest of the architecture that, that NASA is working on, what kind of budgets they're going to get as we're in a politically tricky time here. Um, so they're they're really making the best attempt they can to put themselves in the best position possible to land humans on the moon in the next decade. Mm-hmm. SpaceX was an interesting choice when you look at the two other landers there. The, the SpaceX Starship is just a completely different design for lunar landing. And, you know, a few years ago, probably wouldn't have even been a viable idea for this. And now SpaceX is bidding it and winning contracts with it. I mean, were you surprised to see Starship in, in this lineup? I definitely was. Um, although it's it's interesting when you look at the way that these are contracted, right? There's uh, the, the people that are bidding for this can submit how much budget they would need to fulfill their designs over the next 10 months or so. Um, SpaceX bid that they only need $135 million. I think that number's right. It's, it's in the $100 million range. Mm-hmm. Whereas that Blue Origin team they got upwards of $800 million to develop theirs. Mm-hmm. So the, and that's not NASA saying, uh, SpaceX, you only need $100 million. That's SpaceX saying, we would like $100 million to do what you're asking us to do. So in a, in a way, it's kind of NASA's lottery ticket because it's very cheap to buy. But if that pays off, that changes everything about what NASA's going to do in the near future. It is an incredibly complex architecture that SpaceX has because not only do they need to launch the starship that would take people to the lunar surface, they have to launch a lot of starships to refuel it, to get it all the way out to lunar, uh, to the cislunar space, then to land it on the surface. It is a really complex mission that involves not only starship, but what they're calling super heavy, which is this gigantic booster uh, that would launch on top of it, and then launching several of them, refueling them, and having this incredibly uh, intricate plan to get them out to the to the lunar surface. But again... If that works, uh, it is going to be incredibly cheap for NASA to send humans to the moon in the near in the near future. And the other landers, you know, they're they're a little bit more um, classical in their design. They they look like things that NASA would have developed, um, you know, any time in the last couple of decades. They're not as transformational as something like a Starship would be, but they're very solid technical uh, solutions to what NASA needs to do here. And SpaceX is hard at work developing that that Starship and in. in- Boca Chica, right? I mean, there's there's constant prototype builds and, and tests going on down there uh, as we speak. Yes, there's uh, constant everything going on, including explosions. <laughs> they are definitely not wasting a lot of time uh, getting at it down there. And, and they're, they're taking an approach. It's sometimes hard to tell how different SpaceX is from other companies because they're doing this all in public. All of this development that they're working on in Starship, people are tracking this day to day. You know, we've got cameras and webcams pointed at this thing. Uh, there's major media companies that are watching this every single day, and they're doing it all in public for all of us to see when they're testing out different tanks, different welding techniques. They're using different stainless steel alloys, um, and sometimes those tests go well. Sometimes they explode, but they just keep iterating, and, and it's uh, a little bit like the Monty Python sketch about having a spare because when one blows up, they've got another one coming out of one of their high bays down in Boca Chica. It's pretty relentless when you kind of watch all of the hardware they've got pumping through. Of course, with other companies, we don't see that. You mm-hmm. know, there's a big Blue Origin factory down near you uh, at the Cape. We don't see what's going on in there. They could have a lot of different hardware flowing through for their upcoming launch vehicle, New Glenn, but we will never see that. And SpaceX, on the other hand, 
has, to this point, you know, you were talking about landing Falcon 9 boosters. We clearly saw them working all of that out in public. Uh, and that's been one of their the things that we all love about them is that they do it all in the open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're doing that here again with Starship at an incredible pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, sticking with SpaceX and uh, NASA's commercial partnerships, there was another major commercial milestone for both of them with the launch of DM2. Uh, we've covered it pretty extensively on this podcast, but I'm, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on this, Anthony. I mean, what's next for, for DM2 and how does this shape that that? continuing partnership between NASA and SpaceX. Well, yeah, it's been going incredibly well so far. Bob and Doug are up on the ISS. I think they're getting ready for some spacewalks that are going to kick off at the end of the month here Mm -hmm. uh, with Chris Cassidy, who's up on the ISS uh, as part of a Soyuz mission. So they are integrated right into the ISS as a standard mission. It it became, it was a test flight. Now it became an operational ISS mission. Um, But towards the end of July, I believe right now is the schedule, uh, Bob and Doug will be coming home on that Dragon capsule. They need to bring them home about a month before the next crew is ready to go up. So NASA has a crew of four people that are slated for a launch at the end of August right now. Um, So they need about a month between when Bob and Doug get home. They need to look over that Dragon capsule, make sure that everything's as it's supposed to be when they come back from space. And once they do that, they'll give the green light for what's called Crew 1, where we'll take four people up to the ISS, three NASA astronauts and one JAXA astronauts for a full six-month duration mission on the ISS. So, you know, what what we probably would have thought a couple of years ago, where there would have been a big delay between test flights and operational missions, they are just running it right up to the uh, the timeline here for the first fully operational mission, which I think says a lot in, in both NASA's confidence and SpaceX's confidence that they have a really solid vehicle here that's ready for heavy rotation on the ISS. Mm-hmm. And the head of that commercial crew program, Kathy Leaders, was just named NASA's head of human spaceflight. And I'm going to be honest, when that news broke, I said, duh, why didn't I see this coming? I mean, she's <laughs> perfect for this. You know, what does this say about the agency's commitment to this commercial partnership, that they're taking someone who has really crossed the finish line with this $6 billion commercial partnership and now is overseeing all of NASA's human spaceflight, which, as we know, speaking with you, is taking a more focus on relying on those commercial partners. How does how do you see this kind of playing out? Yeah, that's a huge point to, to talk about how it's elevating you know her expe- expertise to all areas of NASA human spaceflight. She's been heavily involved in commercial crew. She's been managing it since 2014, I believe. So she's been in the trenches with SpaceX and Boeing on commercial crew for six years, has seen what worked, what didn't. There are still, you know, Boeing's having tons of problems with their vehicle. So she's got really good examples of different programmatic structures and technical structures and everything she needs to know about uh, commercial crew. She can now apply to the Artemis program overall. And when it comes to Artemis, SLS and Orion, the launch vehicle and the crew capsule that NASA has been developing for a very long time now, those are the only contracts in place for the Artemis program that are not of this new commercial style. So what has worked with commercial cargo and crew has made its way to the Lunar Gateway, which will be developing a small space station around the moon for use in the Artemis program. There's going to be a commercial cargo style program to supply that gateway uh, with cargo and hardware and everything that it needs. And then these human landing systems are developed in the same way as commercial crew from a programmatic structure. So every piece of the Artemis uh, program is designed as the program that Kathy Leaders has led through to completion 
in flying colors at this point, right? We're a little delayed, but for NASA, it's not a huge surprise that we're delayed just because these projects are gigantic mm-hmm. and uh, they take a lot to get going. So she's going to be able to take all that experience, the things that she's learned, and lead that part of the agency through probably the human landing. Uh, these these heads of these different departments of NASA, they stick around a while. The, the previous long-term head of this department was Bill Gerstenmeier. He was appointed in 2005. That's three presidents ago, all of which have disagreed with each other, but he's stuck there uh, this whole time. So they have a lot more longevity than the head of NASA does, who's a a presidential appointee. Um, I think that's a big point to harp on here is that she could stick around for a decade or longer. And based on her history with commercial crew, I wouldn't bet against that. Well, we've been speaking with Anthony Colangelo. He hosts the Main Engine Cutoff podcast and also co-hosts the Off Nominal podcast as well. Anthony, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Brendan. We spoke more about commercial space. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more on what's happening in the private sector. That bonus content is coming up later this week on Are We There Yet? Still to come, what's the deal with destructive magnetic stars? A conversation with our panel of expert scientists on magnetars. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Magnetars are neutron stars with powerful magnetic fields with the power to destroy anything in their paths. So where do they come from, and what are they capable of? This week on our segment, I'd Like to Know, we're joined by UCF physicist Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney to talk about magnetars. Jim Cooney kicks off the conversation. Magnetars are actually just the leftover husks of big dead stars. Perhaps uh, listeners are more familiar with pulsars, which is the signature of a neutron star. A neutron star is what happens when a big star dies. It collapses and becomes a big giant ball of neutrons. It has a very powerful magnetic field and spins around and spews out a a beam of radiation. And if we're in the path of that beam of radiation, we see this pulse of light every now and again. So we call those pulsars. Uh, Magnetars are kind of an extreme version of that. They're extreme versions of neutron stars that have... I mean, already pulsars or normal neutron stars have very strong magnetic fields. These things are crazy magnetic fields. They they spin very very quickly and produce these very powerful magnetic fields that would tear you apart, tear the tear the metal right out of your blood or something like that if you were standing near them. There we go. There it uh, is. There's the so, scary. Yeah. There's the scary. Yeah, my job on this uh, show is really just to scare Brendan about things that could happen if you were in. In space. Yeah, that sounds that uh, sounds so, um, incredibly destructive and awful and crazy. So these, uh, these are just uh, a few kilometers across, right? And they're spinning. Yes, these are these are the size of a city or something like that, and they're spinning more, you know, multiple times per second. Uh, and of course, uh, it's not really a danger to someone. They would have really perished in the supernova that created this thing, right? So these are the results. Good of, news. Uh, Good news. You you would have perished well before you got anywhere near. <laughs> Um, and magnetars, they seem to be actually rather short-lived. So uh, what will tend to happen with these things is they're spinning very, very quickly and have these powerful magnetic fields, but only for maybe a few tens or hundreds of thousands of years before they kind of calm down their magnetic fields. Still strong, but calm down enough to just become a, a, a typical neutron star. Mm-hmm. But during that short life period, we think they do some pretty awesome things. And they're, uh, we're starting to think that they may be responsible for some of these odd signals that we see from space sometimes, these things like fast radio bursts, uh, where we see these really bright bursts of radiation, uh, you know, very quickly, very powerfully, and we can't explain them. And uh, magnetars may well be at the heart of a lot of these weird, unexplained things that we see out there. Mm -hmm. How how common do, um, you know, scientists think these are? Not very. So, So 
first of all, only the largest stars when they die become neutron stars. Uh, so if you're a star that's eight or 10 times the mass of our sun, when you die, you might go on to become this. But most stars are like the size of our sun or smaller, and those will just become boring old white dwarfs, which are actually friggin' awesome, but um, not magnetars. And, and of the things that produce neutron stars, maybe only 10% of those produce magnetars, and then again, only for a short period of time. So actual magnetars are going to be rare, which is why, of course, these fast radio bursts are also kind of probably fairly rare, fairly mm -hmm. rare thing. Scary, but rare. Okay, good. So I don't have to be scared all the time. <laughs> um, no. So, you know, this is a fascinating thing that comes out of a, a collapsing, dying star. Uh, what other interesting phenomenon happen um, when a star dies? What, what else do we see? I mean, usually well, in the textbooks, we, we think about <laughs> uh, small stars are white dwarfs, and big stars either become a neutron star, which might be a magnetar if it has just the right uh, properties, uh, or if they're big enough, uh, the biggest, scariest thing of them all, of course, which is the black hole. Uh, there may actually be a few other objects that can come out of these things, like weird things like a quark star. What? Which would be a, a big pile of uh, quarks, uh, which is cool, because quarks are another coolly named physics thing. Uh, quarks are, of course, the little particles that make up protons and neutrons. And in just the right circumstances, you might be able to rip apart the, the neutrons in a neutron star and make a soup of quarks. So all kinds of fun things can happen. Unfortunately, most of the funnest things happen. Funnest, I'm not sure is a word. But the most <laughs> fun things happen with large stars, and large stars are rare. So we don't get to see the fun things as often as we get to see the more common things. Uh, for somebody who's scared, that's, of course, good, because the, the fun yes. things are also the most destructive things. Yes, yeah, so, and and, that it, would... and it's it's the formation of these things that's also particularly fun. It's you know, right. not just happening upon a neutron star or a um, even a you know the formation of a white dwarf can be a pretty interesting uh, experience. So when the star dies, it does not go peaceful into that good night. It uh, <laughs> uh, is usually a more violent event, and the bigger the star the more violent the event and, you know, an, an exploding star can be as bright as an entire galaxy, mm -hmm. which is awesome. Is there yeah. anything good that comes out of an exploding star? You guys aren't making the case for this. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. It's great. It's great. I mean, the whole reason we're here is because the stars exploded long ago, right? I mean, all the heavier elements in the universe are the result of big stars dying and spewing their guts out into the universe for them to be eventually recycled into new solar systems. And so, it's amazing. Don't be near it. You know, we don't want to be around <laughs> when the sun dies. And we don't want to definitely don't want to be around a supernova. But I'm sure that it happens because the earliest stars in the universe didn't have planets because they only had hydrogen and helium. So there wasn't any of this heavier stuff to make planets out of. So I'm, I'm sure glad that stars have died. <laughs> and I mean, it's it's not just I mean, it's the, the very heavy stuff requires the explosion itself. It's not just mm -hmm. the explosion to disperse the stuff, but the the creation of things like, as you said, gold and other heavy elements only happens in those uh, those dying moments. Mm -hmm. So I should not be freaked out by these things if uh, if I'd like to thank my existence on these these stars. Basically, go thank, belly up, right? Yeah. Thank your lucky yep. stars. That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addy Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get their podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a question for our panel, send us an email where are we there yet at wmfe.org. 
Are We There? It is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.